0: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
1: When when we were dealing and tackling with gun crime, one of the things I thought of in terms of learning was that what we wanted to do, instead of having a 30% success rate, we we wanted a higher rate. So we actually did less stop and search, but then the people we did stop and search, we had very good intelligence that they were carrying guns or knives. And that intelligence had come from the community. Um, people who knew them. So one thing we didn't want to do is alienate the people who were going to help us capture the people we wanted to capture, uh, and prevent more more crimes happening into the future.
2: Kill the black one first. That was shouted at Michael Fuller as he stood on the front lines of the bricks and riots. He had a shield in hand and a petrol bomb at his feet. Yeah, this is quite an interesting story. Michael Fuller was the first black chief constable. I think we've got a lot to talk about. So this is Stop and Search on Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network Brought to you by Acast in association with Leap UK Here we go
0: Behind your
1: barricades Yeah but how long can I stay Behind your barricades
2: Where to allow the Southern Street Thank you so much for joining us and as I said we're joined by Michael Fuller who was the first black chief constable. He was on the front lines of the Brixton Riots. He was a founding member of the National Black Police Association and he has just got a fascinating story from his childhood all the way through his career and now we're speaking about his book which is titled Kill the Black One First. Let's just get straight into this. This is Stop and Search. I think I'd have to start on, the, yeah, the title is, I don't want to say provocative, but it mm. certainly is eye-catching. Yeah. Um, so can you explain to me where the title comes from?
1: The title, Kill the Black One First, comes from the fact that this was something that was shouted at me when I was a cop on the front line at Brixton 1981. And I was the only black cop amongst some 30 white cops and the crowd, who were very hostile towards to us, um, one, one of the people in the crowd, who was a black uh, guy with dreadlocks, shouted at me, uh, you know, kill, kill the black one first. And he did this very strange laugh. And I thought, well, maybe he's only joking. He, he doesn't mean it, because I was the only black officer there and singled out. And then the next thing is I had this smash of glass and smelt petrol fumes and there were then flames shooting up right in front of me and in front of the officer right next to me and we were both supposedly supposed to be holding our shields together tightly but hadn't and the flames shot from under the shields and and between us so it's quite a frightening experience and that um, we hadn't experienced petrol bombs being thrown before in in I, I couldn't believe the hostility uh, of, of the crowd to, towards us. I mean, the previous day I'd been um, dealing with people who were poor and marginalised in Fulham, uh, helping old ladies across the road and um, helping people who, who were drug addicts, drunk, dealing with domestic disputes. And I didn't expect to be on, on the front line of Brixton having a petrol bomb thrown at me. It's a very, very frightening experience and something I'll remember for the rest of my life. And and
2: this is something that's constant throughout the book, is that your experience with prejudice comes from both sides, doesn't it? It's not just what you'd imagine traditional racism, but it comes from other sectors as well.
1: Well, that was right. And this was a black man who threw this petrol bomb. And there's no doubt that, you know, if I hadn't had the shield there, I probably would have been certainly caught fire. And that. What, what I found is that a lot of the white people uh, were quite bemused by seeing a black police officer. Um, but amongst black people, there were people, there were very strong feelings. Either people were very supportive and very positive or very, very hostile and saw me as having joined the other side, you know, being a coconut, uh, brown on the outside, but white on the inside and a traitor, really, to um, the, the, their cause. And, and the first time that you was out on the beat,
2: you had a lot of curiosity from black people because they hadn't seen someone in uniform before.
1: Yeah, I mean, my first day on the beat at North End Road in Fulham was... And it's not far, from, actually, uh, from here. But the, my first day on the beat at North End Road in Fulham um, was, was was quite something in that uh, I literally stopped the traffic. I, I was a black police officer in uniform. There were about six black police officers in the Met. It's quite unusual to see a black police officer... And everyone, it seemed, stopped and stared at the fact uh, I, I was with a, another older white police officer, and they, they, everyone sort of stared and quite incredulously and in, in, in disbelief. And that um, amongst the the white people, there was amusement um, and bit of uh, mickey-taking, whereas amongst the black people, there were extreme reactions, and some were very positive. Some of the black people came up to me. Somebody, as I mentioned in the book, stopped their car and came up and shook my hand, and basically said things are changing for the better, whereas other black, particularly young black youths, um, thought it was terrible that there was a black police officer, that I'd joined the other side, and I'd joined the enemy, so they 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 shouted abuse and and were very hostile towards me, and I, I think after the first day of of walking the beat in Fulham, I just thought, well, I can't do this again. Uh, you know, I can't I can't have this every day. I couldn't I couldn't even do the job, with um, the the, with the consternation I was causing, and and as time went on, um, things calmed down. People got used to seeing me. Um, people were friendly. Um, There there were some people who weren't very friendly, but uh, there was a a market trader who I ended up arresting, and that um, people got used to seeing me. So it got a lot easier, and and generally, I found the vast majority of people were very friendly, and I I was helping them as much as anything. I, I saw you give
2: a speech in my local waterstones in Canterbury, and that's where I picked up the book, and you had the whole crowd absolutely thrilled in the story. Um, And especially your heritage as well, because one of the things that stood out when you was given the speech, but also in the book, is that you've got a a maternal figure that is just such an integral part of your existence. Um, Can you give a little bit of
1: background on your upbringing? Well, I was brought up by um, a woman who was white uh, in, in care and uh, the place I was brought up was a place called Fairmar Hatch, which was a big stately home. It was run as a children's home. There was a nursery at one end of the driveway, and at the other end of the long driveway was um, a building called The Lodge, where the older children, certainly children over five, uh, were brought up by this woman um, called Margaret Hurst, and she's the person the book's dedicated to, and she was an amazing woman. She looked after me from the age of 18 and a half months right through to 16 years old and sadly when I was 16 and uh, I had the chance to tell her that I'd been accepted to, to join the police cadets um she, she died and she died at the age of 32 of ovarian cancer and uh, far too, far too young she was an amazing woman though and uh, taught me uh, the difference between right and wrong um, she set very sort of clear boundaries, really, in terms of behaviour and expectations, in terms of values as well. Um, it was very much about fairness, kindness, justice. Uh, we're all important to her. And I've taken those, um, those values on myself and used a lot of her principles for bringing up my own children, which I've done very successfully. So, you know, knowing the difference between right and wrong, you know, being um, clear and fair about how you treat other people are all, all important uh, principles that I've, I've carried with me for, for, for the rest of my life and, and it was a you know it's very sad that she, she died so young um, having really I suppose produced amazing results in that certainly the six children I was with throughout my time in care none of them went off the rails in the way that often there's stigma about children being in care they all um, went on to lead very useful productive lives and was successful in whatever they chose to do so she she was an amazing person and that i was pleased i was able to dedicate the book to her and and the way you write it in the book
2: <clears throat> it honestly it, it just it completely breaks you because you you said yourself that it's a very visual book and the way that you described it when she, the last time you saw her i had to take a break from the book after that point because it was it was just so hard hitting yeah um yeah. and you
1: you mentioned your parents in it as well because you they come from the Windrush generation, don't they? Yeah, my, my parents came from the Windrush generation. They came to England in, in the late 50s and they found life very hard, so much so that they uh, weren't able to, to look after me for, for one reason or another. They split up and my mother found life particularly hard, um, so much so that I um, was found you know, in a cot, um, albeit clean and um, clothed, uh, probably clothed and looked, looked after um, but my mother found it very hard um, to cope, you know, with, with life in Britain. Also, um, was not able to look after me properly. So as a result, I was taken into care, and that um, uh, that was quite a dramatic scene as well, because my mother didn't want me to be taken into care, and that uh, the police and the social workers uh, took, took me off as a baby, eighteen and a half old, month old baby. Um, but I adjusted to being in care very quickly because, really, of the care of Auntie Margaret. She she was very much a saint and an amazing woman. And you do make that clear throughout the writing
2: is that the environment you're brought up in it could be conducive to, as you say, going off the rails, all the things that you associate with that. But because you had that solid ground of Auntie Margaret, you know, did that have an influence in you and the moral compass that we just spoke about? Is that why you think that you did? further along your your career paths.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the actual environment of Fairmile Hatch was pretty idyllic, and it was everything a child, a young child, would want. There were donkeys, there were fields, there were toys, there were play areas, and there were woods that we were allowed to go in the woods, quite surprisingly, even though we were in care. Um, and that there was tremendous freedom, but very, very clear boundaries. I mean, if you were due back at a particular time, and you didn't come back, then you'd, you'd be in, in, in big trouble. And I think those boundaries and um, knowing the difference between right and wrong um, and, and the values that um, were instilled in me were, were 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 very important. And I don't remember any of the children ever running away. I mean, you wouldn't want to run away. It was such a nice place. But when I look back at the photographs, which is quite interesting after some 50 years, you look at the children's faces in this idyllic environment, and none of them look happy, which is quite strange. And, of course, a lot of the children were in the same position that I was in, in that they were taken away forcibly from, from their parents. And even though they were in this idyllic surroundings, they, they'd still, uh, like, like I would, rather have been with, with the parent, you know, with, with my mother or my father. So um, that's, that's the reason why the children weren't happy. But as I said, none of the children ran away, which um, has been a problem in other children's homes. And it was made clear that you had a very
2: inquisitive nature from a from a young age. You you spoke about how you found treasure, buried treasure, and that almost gave you the incentive, along with TV programmes of the day like Zed
1: Cars and things like that. Did that gear you up for the police? Did that set you...? People often ask why I joined the police and that... I used to watch television drama with Auntie Margaret, and then we um, we had some experiences. There were two in particular. One one was actually finding what we said was buried treasure, but in actual fact, um, in in the woods which ran alongside the children's home, um, my brothers and I we found um, this black bin liner bag, this black you know black bag, black plastic bag. And that i I noticed and i I was quite suspicious about it, because it seemed tucked out of the way as if somebody had tried to hide it sort of hurriedly, um, and that was very much instinctive, so I um opened the the bag and said to my brothers, "Maybe it 's buried treasure, and sure enough, having opened it the the bag was actually full of silver trophies, which were inscribed with with various things that we didn't really understand um, but we took the black bag back to Auntie Margaret, and were very, very proudly that we'd found all this buried treasure. And she wasn't, wasn't that impressed, unfortunately, and she, uh, I think her response was all oh, no." And then she rang the police, and the police officer came along. It wasn't the police officer I knew, unfortunately. and um, he uh, came along with the owner, or the, the, the chap who thought this might be his property that was stolen from a burglary, and it was. And he gave us um I think half a crown reward, which is not much. I'm not sure what that is in today's money, but it wasn't very much. Bearing in mind he'd got them back the, the his property back. Um, but we were really pleased in in terms of having being able to return this stolen property to, to its rightful owner. And then the, the second time, I suppose the second significant event I got involved in was um once the People in the in the home I was with moved to a place in Crawley and Sussex. Um, we lived in a big uh, house there, um, fairly newish property in Crawley Newtown. The the children's home was broken into in the middle of the night, three o'clock in, in the morning one morning, and I was actually sleeping downstairs. And the burglar had broken my bedroom window, climbed um, into the bedroom, walked through, burgled the house, taking property, some of which was very sentimental and money as well. And I, I woke up to see the back of his head, and it looked like a, a young boy, sort of mid-twenties, uh, sorry, mid-teens. mid mid, mid um, teens. So he looked like a young boy, mid-teens, who, who was just going out of the window, so I only saw the back of him. Police came, um, our dog, Shake, didn't wake up, which was very disappointing. And that... Um, the following following morning, I, I um I went for a walk in our local park as usual, taking Shake for his walk, and he kept barking at this um, young man who was um, asleep on a bench, and um, I, I I sort of tried to drag Shake away, but he he and and you you can tell when your dog knows something after you get to know a dog really well that something is wrong, so I then ran to the local bobby. Who 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 lived in a house uh, quite near ours, and ran ran back, and it was probably about a mile. But I ran back as fast as I could with the dog, and the dog loved it, you know, loved loved the running, the bit of excitement. And the police officer drove us both back to the park, where this young man was was uh, laying asleep on the bench. He was still asleep, surprisingly, despite the dog barking. And that um, it turned out he was the burglar, and he had all the stolen property, particularly the sentimental items that have been stolen and, and the cash that had been stolen from the burglary. So I got immense satisfaction from effectively solving my first case, solving the burglary. It meant that the children who had things stolen got it back. I got things that had been stolen and got them back, and, and we had the cash back. So we were also, you know, really pleased the the whole thing had been sold. And the the other thing I was able to say to the children is this: this guy... Um, who carried out the burglary he wasn't as frightening as 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 you imagine a burglar would be as a, as a child. You know, he was just an ordinary young lad who um, had um, fell on you know hard times and suffered some sort of misfortune. I didn't get a chance to speak to him, but he certainly didn't seem very frightening when I saw him. You know, the following morning in the park. So um, I, I was pleased all round that the crime had been solved. Um, Shake the dog got um, some extra dog treats, I think, that day. And ev- everybody was very pleased it had been solved. I mean, we'd rather it not had happened. but There was nothing better than, than it being solved. And certainly a, a theme throughout the book is empathy.
2: You always manage to find uh, a basis of, of looking at an inner person as opposed to, you know, stereotyping. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute because I'm really interested in the journey into the police force because... It wasn't standard of someone being of black nature and, and heritage to go into the police force, which is predominantly all white, in a racist environment of the time, because as you mentioned in the book, we had Alf Garney on the telly constantly with those, with the insults that were almost mainstream still, if the even if sometimes people thought they were saying things that were helpful, it still wasn't, because it was still making a highlight of the race divides. So, how did you go? From going into from child in care into the police force and everything that comes with that sort of institutionalism.
1: Well, I mean the the interesting thing was that I um, lot lots of lot lots of people who were very influential in my life. So my um, parents, albeit I didn't live with them, friends, uh, particularly school friends, and the guy who became my best man at my wedding, uh, as well as teachers. Also, don't join the police. You'll experience lots of racism. You'll have a really hard time and it will damage you. Um, so, I had to think very hard about joining the police. And the only person who did support me was Auntie Margaret, who um, had passed away once I'd got in anyway. Um, so, you know, there, there was nobody there to support my decision um but i i felt it was the right thing to do i was passionate about policing detective work and what i'd seen in terms of the police drama um but what i didn't know was the reality and the reality was that i did experience the racism and i did have a hard time but the policing and the the side of the police work was was absolutely fascinating i learned so much and had so many opportunities um uh, opportunities to go to university because i want to ex-cadet police cadet scholarship to go to university I traveled obviously uh, all over the world once I was a senior officer looking at crime issues giving advice on crime issues and learning uh, how other countries dealt with some of the intractable problems that we have in Britain but either way uh, I'm I'm just so glad I ignored those who told me not to do it uh, because I I had you know amazing opportunities and I think I, I met some of the nicest people you'd ever wish to meet, but I also met some of the nastiest people you'd you'd ever wish to meet, and you know some of those were in the police. And, and also, just throughout your academic career as well, you mentioned that
2: national front flyers were were kind of commonplace. You know, you, you were pretty much handed one in in a roundabout sort of way. That's the level of racism that you were dealing with back then
1: yes i mean the the book is of its time, and then the far right and far right activity was 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 everywhere, so yeah, within the police station, even the police notice board, I think certain officers had put the notices the the national fund far right notices on the notice board to um provoke provoke trouble um, you know and of course, the canteen staff were black as well, so you know they they felt um very offended by these notices being put up, but they were put up, you know, to to cause offence. When I was at university, the the National Front invaded um, the discotheque where um, there were predominantly black um, students, uh, but also, you know, it was a mixed group of, of white students as well but they, they invaded the discotheque. Uh, they were chased out, as you can imagine. There were heavily, it was, it was some 10 National Front supporters who came in and shouted that, and, uh, but they were chased out. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the book you know reflects the, the time that I was in, the, the, the Alf Garnett-type racism. Um, it was explained to me that Alf Garnett was, was very much satire. Uh, you're laughing at him rather than with him um but i think for somebody in a minority and somebody black that he it didn't he it didn't it didn't feel like satire and and that some people were, were were laughing with him um and clearly didn't see the the satire the, the satire and, and and clearly didn't see the you know well alf garnet and the offensive language he was using that it was very much satirical and of him uh rather than laughing with him but I I found that all very difficult uh, as a young boy, trying to understand it all. Even down
2: to work functions, you went to comedians, and you were the butt of the jokes. The the comedian was aimed at you, making all the the usual racist slurs, all the usual lines of the day. Um, And how, how do you deal with that? You explain it in the book, but... It must have been difficult because you've got to put up a front but at the same time
1: confront it. How did you deal with it? Well, sometimes I didn't deal with it very well. Um, The incident you're talking about when I was uh, an inspector level. So I was a relatively senior officer at Vine Street and a comedian was telling jokes. And I I walked in slightly late to the event and it was uh, a social event in the evening. And that um, the comedian, as I walked in, said, oh, Spearchuck has just walked in. And I I was shocked, actually, at the time. And that um, I think I laughed along with the audience, who thought it was all very funny. Um, And didn't really know how to to deal with it. You know, whether to confront him, which would have been silly. Uh, Anyone who tries to confront a comedian is, is asking for trouble or says anything in retort, is asking for trouble and that um, it was quite clear to the audience that even though I'd laughed along, that I was very offended and, and very hurt by what had been said and the jokes that had been made. And, and the thing is, it wasn't just one joke, it was a whole series, you know. So it, it was making my presence there very, very uncomfortable. Uh, because I thought, you know, okay, he's he's said one joke and everyone's had a laugh. Well, you know, why, don't, why doesn't he just leave it at that? Um, and then you know he, he just continued with his his, um, his diatribe of, of, of jokes and racist jokes. So yeah, you know, very um, very difficult uh, to to deal with. And and the only thing that Auntie Margaret taught me to to do was was not to react on on emotion. The, you know, to think and decide what you're going to do. Use the official channels of complaining, if that's appropriate. But either way, don't, don't react emotionally to, to things. And that, that was very sound advice then, and, and it was very sound advice now. You know, I, I've taken that with me uh, all, all through my career and my life generally. And it, and it served me well in not overreacting to, to situations. I think that's definitely something that we can all learn from Auntie Margaret is don't react, sit back, think. Yeah, and I suppose the classic thing is in the car, isn't it, with the road rage, which I see nearly every day in London. But e- either way, there's lots of people who do act on emotion rather than thinking rationally and, and thinking through how they're going to respond to somebody who might have offended them. And, the, you know, generally, I've I've adopted a, a reasoned, reasonable approach in dealing with people. And, you know, sometimes I, I reported incidents because I felt that was appropriate. And and sometimes there there wasn't a need to, because people uh, realised the the hurt they would caused. And as you said, that was that incident
2: with the comedian was when you were fairly senior. So what was it like when you first started going out on the beat
1: in uniform? when I when I first go started going out on the beat in uniform, the uh, the, the racist insults, albeit some of those were, were by other police officers, but strangely the, the other the, the police officers on my shift were people I got on with really well and liked and respected and they would sometimes use racist language but it'd always be well present company accepted, you know, this is no offence, Michael, um and then and then use some racist word. Um and you know, I, I used to find that quite bizarre and they knew that I found that uncomfortable. But I mean the racist language was commonplace. So you know, they, they didn't see themselves do, as doing anything wrong and they weren't challenged, you know, certainly not by anybody senior in terms of the language that was used of the day. So I found that, I found that very tough and, and I suppose it affected my feeling of belonging, really, because I, I wanted to be accepted um, by, you know, various groups of police officers that I worked with. And, you know, those, when they did use racist language, it, it made me feel that I, I didn't belong. And you was a point
2: of curiosity to black people and white people in uniform, weren't you? You were were that figure that people were, hang on a minute, there's there's someone different here in uniform. Can you explain
1: what that must have been like? Yeah, I mean, there were different reactions from black people um, to me being in uniform to white people. In that, that I think a lot of the white people, I mean, when when they were in distress, I don't think they cared what colour you were. So, um, you know, that, that wasn't really a big problem. Um, or if you were reporting them or arresting them, and, and sometimes I would get some racist abuse, but I'd always report, record that racist abuse and report it to the court as well. And the courts were very protective to me, if people had used racist language. Um, and that, uh, because the judges certainly didn't approve of uh, a public servant being treated like that um some of the some of the black people i think i've mentioned already that were were very offensive and there was very much divided responses but yeah it was very difficult it made me feel very uncomfortable and it made doing the job a lot more difficult so much so that uh, there was a stage when there were more black and asian officers leaving the police and joining and it had that continued that trajectory in terms of what they called the wastage rate Continued, then there would have been no black or Asian officers left in the force. And that, that's because things were so bad, certainly when I was in inspector level, in terms of the levels of racism, that a lot of people would say, well, enough's enough. Why should I put up with this? I'm just trying to do a job. And why should I face uh, racism in, in just trying to do my job, both from people inside the organisation and the people outside? To such a degree of, of black people leaving, I think it was about four times the rate of white people. They were, yes, they, they were, and it was four times the rate. In that. I believe it was still the case in, in the Met in uh, 2017, from the figures I've seen. So the wastage rate is still a problem. And what I feel is that the service should be putting its efforts into uh, stopping people leaving, whatever colour, because you spend thousands and thousands of pounds training up people and developing them and if they leave then it's a big loss to the organization you you lose their knowledge and experience uh, and and the benefits of the fact that most communities want the people in in the police and and other public servants to reflect the communities that they serve It, it seems normal so you know, if the police want to achieve respect, then they've got to reflect the community that they serve. So you know, I, I feel often the effort is put into recruiting, that money is put into recruiting, that would be better put into uh, retaining staff and um, ensuring people feel and have a sense of belonging that they can influence the organisation, that the organisation is interested in their concerns, and they feel that they're 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 one of the team. This is, this is something that drove uh, a roundtable discussion
2: to get in place some kind of solution to why people were leaving at such a rate, wasn't it? And, and it, that was the precursor to the Black uh, Police Association, which you are completely an integral member of. Can you give me a background on that whole scene?
1: Yes. the I, I, well, I talk in the book about the stage, certainly when I was inspector level, so it would be about the mid-'80s, where... There were more black officers leaving than joining the Met, and the Met were were genuinely concerned about this, and they genuinely didn't want the black and Asian officers to leave, so much so that we were required, so we didn't have a choice, that we were bussed, with all the connotations that has, we were bussed down to Bristol with a cohort of white officers so that it couldn't we couldn't say that uh, there was discrimination. But we were taken away from our normal work, and for, for good reasons and well-meaning, in, in the... Um, there were seminars held down in Bristol um, that were designed to find out the reasons why black and Asian officers were leaving at such a high rate and I mean clearly racism was behind it but it was also a case of what could the organization do to stem the flow of officers leaving so the various discussion groups various recommendations came out of the discussions um in terms of the committee, you know, equal opportunities committee, uh, that was set up. I think to start with though, it didn't include any black or Asian officers, which was quite ironic. Um, but as a result, I, I was involved in setting up what was called the Black and Asian Police Association. It was the, the name was shortened, um, I think a year later, just the Black Police Association. And the idea was to have a support group. Um, the officers who felt victims of racism or bullying could actually um, seek advice and support, and hopefully stop them leaving the organisation. And I think that, combined with a lot of other things, the organisation did, uh, was ultimately successful in helping grow the numbers of black and Asian staff. And certainly, you know, whilst the makeup isn't as, as uh, doesn't reflect society generally. Um, at, at least, you know, people like myself didn't didn't leave because there was always this body that, that provided support to to these officers who felt quite isolated.
2: There's a great line that you say, and I love this: you can't legislate against prejudice, but you can legislate against discrimination. Is is that the basic gist of what I was trying to? get to the root of, of the Black police Association and everything that was that was going on at that
1: time yes you, you, you can't you can't legislate against prejudice you know people are entitled to their views some of those views are prejudice and people in black communities are prejudiced as, as, as well but so you, you can't legislate against that and what people think um, but you can legislate in relation to their behavior. And it's the behaviour that, that, that often caused the, the most serious problems and, and was damaging, whether that was in the form of bullying or um, sometimes it, it was criminal behaviour in terms of the way uh, uh, black and Asian officers were, were treated. It must have been difficult for you because of seeing both sides
2: of the race divide on the police, but also on domestic level, at street level, because you mentioned that one of the first things that happened when you went out on the beat is that you were surrounded by black youths that were questioning you about stop-and-search powers because even then, as we have now, there's a disparity in stop-and-search figures. You know, if you're young and black, chances are you're going to be in stop-and-search far more than if you're white. That must have been difficult to, to rationalise.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it was. Um, the, the issue of stop-and-search was very controversial. Um, the, the, the 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 report by Lord Scarman points out that uh, Swamp 81 was probably the cause of um, the Brixton riots. So in Brixton and the borough of Lambeth, there were very, very high levels of street robbery. I mean, they were definitely too high. The question was, well, what should be done to to actually reduce the levels of street robberies? So what the police did was they they stopped and searched every everyone, albeit it was mainly black people, because there's predominantly a black population in Brixton at the time and not surprisingly um there was a huge backlash from the black community so much so that it ended up in the brixton riots and um lots of damage and uh, you know the whole area was des- des- you know desecrated and des- des- desolate as a, as a result so um i think i think there's learning there in terms of what works i mean the what you want, a community supporting you in, in uh, tackling crime and violent crime, um, you, you shouldn't be alienating them. And certainly, Swamp 81 in, in Brixton showed that um, the, if you alienate communities, you, you get a backlash.
0: Selling a little or a lot?
2: and that's that's interesting that you said that you want to learn from that because there's two themes within the book that certainly run parallel today and that is the stop and search and also knife crime and they're the two areas that you really focus on in certain chapters of the book um, and even down to things like the Notting hill riots of how there was a massive race background to that because black people having to defend their own homes because the police weren't just going in at that time um so what what do you think we can learn from the from the tenure that you had in the police force to today's um, domestic scene of stop and search and knife carrying?
1: Well, I'd, I'd, I'd say that stop and search is an important power for the police, but um, it it's overstated, and overrated in terms of a tactic. So, the police inspectorate, which I was a member of, carried out research in relation to stop and search, and whilst thirty percent. Who the people stopped and searched in London were, were of interest to police in some way. Um, the you know the vast majority were, were innocent. So what what's also important. So the, the, as a tactic, is not that successful. So what's also important is that if people are stopped and searched, that it's carried out with respect and courtesy. By the officers doing that stop and search. So when when I used to do stop and search, I never had a complaint. So the people who didn't want to be stopped and didn't want to be searched, but I, I would always do it courteously and and with respect for the individual, and 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 it's, it's a horrible, embarrassing experience. So I, I would I would recognise that, um, but also recognise I still had a job to do. Um, when when we were dealing and tackling with gun crime, one of the things I thought of in terms of learning was that what we wanted to do instead of having a 30 percent success rate we we wanted a higher rate so we actually did less stop and search but then the people we did stop and search we had very good intelligence that they were carrying guns or knives and that intelligence had come from the community um, people who knew them so one thing we didn't want to do is alienate the people who were going to help us capture the people we wanted to capture uh, and prevent more more crimes happening into the future. So stop and search was not the most important tactic. Gleaning intelligence in communities, uh, but, but also demonstrating we were tackling the problem by stopping the right people at the right time, um, taking guns off the streets, taking knives off the streets, I found was a far more effective in, uh, tactic. It was intelligence-led and the none of the people who were stopped and searched could be surprised that they, they were stopped. But blanket stop and search as a tactic has uh, been shown to, to be very ineffective and alienate whole communities.
2: And, that, and that's fascinating that you said that community-led intelligence, because one of the things I really wanted to speak to you about was Operation Trident, and the way that you did the background on that was a very unique way. You Can you tell me about the Hackney Empire, please?
1: Yeah, the um, one of the things about Operation Trident was I spent quite a long time, I mean, my bosses would probably have said too long, just trying to get community support. And so it was explaining what we were doing and why in terms of um, setting up this Operation Trident unit to, to tackle gun crime. And I thought it was very important that people knew what we were doing, why we were doing it, uh, and, you know, none of it was going to be soft in terms of soft options. So whilst we didn't use stop and search as a tactic, the you know, the the armed officers who were part of the operation were waking people up at three in the morning um, with, with guns, and there was nothing soft about that, if you're the person who's woken up. But it was actually very successful. So um, well, one of the things I did before we started was... Um, Uh, Talk to community groups. One of the community groups I was asked to go and uh, speak to was a group of about 300 young people who had written a play and the play, the dilemma faced by the main uh, lead in the play was, should I help the police or should I not? Uh, Where somebody he knew was involved, you know, heavily involved in gun crime and had a gun. At the end of the play there was a vote and um, I'd had a chance to give an input as to why people should help the police. Uh, there was a play, and the play was stopped whilst this person faced this dilemma, was making a decision. So the audience were actually participating by saying whether he should help the police or, or not, and go to the police with his friend. And the the there was this very tense moment, and certainly I felt quite vulnerable um, when the audience voted to, to, to help the police. Uh, tackle the problem of, of gun prime and basically said that i had their support so yeah it was quite a nerve-wracking moment um i felt quite vulnerable and that um probably shouldn't have put myself in that position but i had um but the community made the right decision and ultimately uh, what with that there were legislative measures brought in so the government of the day brought in powers uh, are still in force, that uh, if you're found in possession of a, of a handgun, uh, you face a minimum of five years imprisonment. So you can imagine that um, for your average adult, that's a big deterrent for, for carrying a handgun in, in the streets of London. And, and you said as well that you
2: gave a small speech beforehand, which was highly intimidating because the crowd were very interactive. Very, um, even throughout the performance of that play, it was very interactive, you said. Yeah, and
1: very heated, yeah. So I I gave this speech, and the crowd listened to it, or the majority did anyway. But either way, I I didn't think the vote would would go my way. Um, But I I feel reassured that the community voted to to support me, because, I mean, what do you do then if you don't have community support? Um, Ultimately, an unarmed police force, we were trying to tackle gun crime. Um, you police with consent, but then sometimes to enforce the law, the, the police have to use um, force. But I mean, the, you know, anyway, the, the, the people make the right decision and the, London was better for it as a result. And far fewer lives lost as a result. I think that's the thing. It's, it's very easy to forget that, that lots of people, um, you know, have, have lost their lives through, through violent crime. And I think, you know, there, there should be this... Uh, the culture of violence and violent crime should should be tackled. I don't think, really, we should be as tolerant of it as a society. And, and one of the things that's clear, as, as you just said there, is that,
2: and as I mentioned earlier, is that you've always had empathy. You've always seen a person as opposed to a crime. Uh, and you said yourself as well that the way to tackle people with addiction and drugs and things like that is is care and and education, not just blanket prosecution.
1: Yes, definitely, yeah. So one of the best projects I saw um, really dealing with crime uh, was uh, a teacher in San Diego who ran a project called Reality Changers and basically what it involved, and he he was tutoring people who'd come out of gangs and uh, he... um, would educate those, certainly uh, weren't children, but young people um, who'd come out of the gang and often they'd be bullied or uh, assaulted in coming out of the gang. And that um, when I went to visit him, he'd managed to get 150 young people out of um, the local street gangs. And these were like the Los Angeles street gangs and modelled on them, um, mainly men with t- heavily tattooed, you know, on their faces as well as, all over their body, Um, and that having um, tutored them, the young people would uh, take the entrance exams for university or college, depending on what was appropriate, and that they uh, would uh, then get corporate sponsorship. Having got into university or college, they would get corporate sponsorship to go to university or college. Now, not surprising, all those young people, there'd been 150 uh, at the time, uh, there was no way they were going to go back to the street gangs, having got into university and college, and having had that opportunity to to go and study. So, um, you know, as as a preventative measure and and giving uh, young people hope and a future, it it was a very successful scheme. And I met a lot of the I met well I met some of the people um, who who were on the scheme or who'd been on the scheme or who he was tutoring as well. So yeah, it schemes like that, mentoring schemes have been very effective, uh, I suppose diverting young people from crime and giving them guidance. So a lot of the Trident operation was also about encouraging local authorities who helped all, all over London come up with preventative schemes that would prevent young people getting involved in violent crime. And the trouble is, all that seems to have been lost and, and waned over time because we have not seen the levels of violence that we're now seeing in relation to knife crime. So I think, you know, people got complacent, the politicians got complacent, and there hasn't until um, recently been the political will to actually tackle the, the, the terrible loss of, of young lives. That, that was going to be my question, actually, is that with everything that's going on now, it's all
2: in the news. What would be your... Not solutions, because you know, that's going to be quite a, you know, a definite term, but what would be your, your course of action at the moment?
1: Well, I don't pretend to have a quick fix, and the, one of the problems is that some of the solutions to tackling knife crime in particular uh, are quite long-term, require long-term sustained solutions that, that actually prevent, i.e. you start at early intervention and you, you carry on... Um, really giving guidance, mentoring those people who are likely to get involved in, in knife crime into the future. So, you know, that, that requires a lot of resources, intensive effort. It requires local authorities to set up youth clubs and other diversion schemes that will stop young people getting involved. But, I mean, the, 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 the principles of Trident and, and what we did around Operation Trident was that we tackled the crime, but we'd also ensure there was preventative element to prevent young people getting getting involved in crime. So it was a combination of three things. There was the community intelligence that was important, and that, that was quite a huge task, because some of the intelligence and information we received was about people about to commit a crime. So what we had to ensure was the police response was quick enough to prevent somebody being killed. And it, and there was also the long-term preventative element of the, the Trident, which... Um, basically was looking to divert those people who were likely because of their age, because of their community, their circumstances, they were likely to become involved in crime. And then as part of that was, was the once people had been convicted of crimes, that wasn't the end. The, when they finished um, a sentence of imprisonment or they had been convicted, it was very important that they were part of a diversion scheme that dealt with their needs for education and employment and would stop them going, going back to, to being involved in crime. So, very complex problem that requires a very complex solution, and a sustained solution, which doesn't neatly fit political timeframes. And, that's, uh, and, that, and that makes it more difficult, uh, because often politicians aren't willing to give funding that's sustained um, beyond um, electoral timeframes.
2: And quite often, what, look good, what looks good in headlines as well, because you know, as we've seen recently, you know, a lot of times, like you said, because of cuts, people do in Westminster rely on headlines, and and you said yourself in the book that. to certainly to drugs, that education is the
1: answer not necessarily more police operations. Yes, I've said that education is the answer and not more police operations. But interestingly, when I was in downtown Kingston in an area of one square mile of West Kingston where some 1,500 people had been murdered that year, the, the policewoman who was there, and bear in mind I had access to financial resources from various foreign governments, British, American, Canadian governments, who were all willing to help tackle the problem of gun crime there the the thing that was said to me by a policewoman who worked there who was surrounded by children a bit like an auntie margaret figure um she she said the the the, the, the one thing i expected her i said well i've got access to financial resources you know, what one thing do you think would make the biggest difference and she said um ironically that um, education would make the biggest difference uh would give these children a future and um, we're talking about children, um, gosh, from five, six years upwards. Uh, but it, 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 the education was, was was the solution, and that would give them a future. And that um, the interestingly, the area of West Kinster I went back there last year, and you you can go back without the big armed police escort surrounding you, and that. The part of the area, even Trench Town, is one of the most popular tourist spots to stay. Certainly not a very safe area, but it's somewhere tourists can go and stay, and, and one of the most biggest tourist attractions. Uh, so, how things have changed over some 10 years in terms of safety, in terms of um, young people now uh, involved in the tourist trade, and you know the, the place that was actually calling out for international assistance. Is now a big tourist hotspot and and very different economically to how it was when I first went out there. Yeah. So from Kingston, I've,
2: uh, to finish off, I've got to then go back to Kent because <laughs> you were the first black police uh, uh, chief constable, which yes. is, again, just... When, when you put it in those terms, it seems completely crazy that you were the first black chief constable so what was that like
1: going into that role i think i think being the first black chief constable was seen as a big deal certainly to the media and meant i suffered a lot press scrutiny um personal scrutiny as well in that uh, relatives were doorstepped out in uh, caribbean that um my friends my school friends were contacted on friends reunited i was heavily vetted uh with newspapers really looking for dirt, uh, which they didn't find. Um, but I, I was subject to a lot of very close scrutiny. I mean, I was very proud of the fact that um, I'd managed to achieve and, and become a chief of police effectively uh, and thought it was a good thing. And I also thought that lots more black uh, and Asian officers would would, would follow and it, it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, but that, that hasn't happened yet, and we're talking eight years now. Uh, still, there still hasn't been um, any other black or Asian police officers uh, appointed as chiefs of police. And I'm, I'm very surprised at that. And, um, you know, the, I, I would have thought in the 21st century that that would have happened. I don't know why it hasn't happened. Um, it's not really for me to answer why it hasn't happened. But, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed about that. So, so based on
2: those themes, I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, and it's something that I, I recently addressed with Nish Kumar, actually, who who had a Question Time run in with Melanie Phillips about the McPherson report, which also runs through your book. And the question is 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 the police force institutionalised racist? Uh, what would be your take on that?
1: I I think some of the stats that existed at the time when McPherson was looking at the Met, so. Um, black people were some eight times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. they were more likely to be charged with criminal offences, receive higher, sentences, more serious, punitive sentences, and more likely to be imprisoned. I mean, a lot of a lot of those stats still apply, if not all of them. The black officers of the time were more likely to face disciplinary sanctions for any indiscretions, and um, you know that that still applies. So yeah, I mean that that's quite worrying that some of those big stats that are part of the criminal justice system would suggest that it doesn't doesn't work as fairly as it it should do. And and I think nobody's given a a proper explanation as to why why those you know, why why it's still the same. So, you know, has, has much changed as as a result. Um yeah I think that's a because very eloquent I think
2: that's a very eloquent way of putting what is a very difficult question. I do want it to be a leading question because there is no definite answer to that, so I think you put that across brilliantly yeah. uh, so thank you so much for joining me, Michael and I cannot recommend a book enough it is I read it within about a week because it is just so so good and so yeah. easy to read as well right. because it is so visual yeah. so thank you so much for joining me okay yeah pleasure thank you thank you so much for listening and I really do truly recommend Michael Fuller's book, "Kill the Black One First. It is a fascinating read. And if you're interested in the topics that we cover, such as stop and search and race disparity, then go follow the work of Stopwatch UK and also Release Drugs. Both of them put out really, really good reports on all the topics that we discussed. And I need to do some quick thank yous. Thank you so much to Distraction Pieces Network and Scooby's Pit for having us. Thank you so much to the two Johns, John Harris and John Cross both of whom do their respective social medias on the Distraction piece Network and Leap UK. Thank you to Nikki and Tristan, the producers of this show. Without them, I'd just be speaking into my own sock drawer. Thank you so much to... Uh, my name is Ad for Audio, what do you do? And thank you to all the listeners. Thank you, because without your support, we wouldn't be here. So if you could leave a nice review on iTunes, if you could recommend this to your friends and keep this conversation going... And I think on that note, I can sign off and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye.
0: Behind your barricades
1: Yeah, but how long can I stay Behind your barricades
0: We're through our southern street